So welcome to Tony Spence. I'm very grateful that you could make it. And um, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. Really excited to have a conversation and share a little bit about some, I guess, thoughts and ideas around technology. It's such an essential piece of what we do within education. Um, and it's great to, to have been such a big part of that in so many different systems. I really do enjoy um, the active input and impact it has on education. Fantastic. So why technology in education? So just to share with you how I got started in this, you know, I'm not a learning technologist. My background is an English teacher uh, and I got involved in things like media and film and things like that also. And um, I got in, then got into teacher education and saw that people were tech and very often not learning a great deal at all. So that led to my interest in that. But uh, what about you? Um, why this interest in technology in education? Yeah, well, I've always had a interest in all things technology, even from a young age. I was fortunate enough that my family had a personal computer, and I'm dating myself, but I always had a personal computer. So from a very young age, I've always had that type of interface. Of course, uh, internet was another stage and phase of that, but always had the ability to have software, have programs, have access to computing, to work on early programming, even as a young child and to allow that to be kind of the um, pillar of things, particularly at home. And so while these days, you know, we have a lot of our kids on mobile devices, well, my time was spent on a computer and that kind of stuck with me to the point where when I went to college, I went into education, but then they asked me to get a minor. And I said, well, you like math and you like science. So why not choose that? And I said, what about computers? They said, well, you know, those are on opposite sides of the spectrum. It doesn't make sense. And you won't be as marketable if you have a computer information systems minor. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think it would actually be a really great thing. So it was an ongoing dialogue with the dean of my college to try to figure out a way to make that happen. And after many conversations, they confirmed it. And so I ended up being able to have a computer information systems minor and an education major. And it was a really great combination. And that set the stage for uh, basically what happened from there. So you were ahead of your time, which is uh, in a way, maybe, maybe it was random luck, but certainly the interest was there. And I was so thankful that they allowed me to do that. I mean, going way back to when you, you started thriving using computers, what mm -hmm. skills do you think it was giving you that would inspire you and um, equip you with the skills that you needed in adulthood? Yeah, well, uh, before there was really a great interface, it was using like Microsoft DOS, this operating system. And you ended up learning how to manipulate and manage the computer with commands. And it was the very base level. So learning how to program, learning how to understand why the computer is responding the way it does, meant I wasn't just using it as an interface tool. I was using it had a way to learn and open up the black box that was the computer. So I felt very fortunate to be an early adopter of that just because of how incredible it was as a tool, but also to start like moving jumpers, increasing chipset speeds, adding RAM, to building up machines and taking them down. And again, understanding how they interact and perform and then realizing, okay, so this is the very base level and how binary works. So I feel like, having that background makes everything else make sense. 
Mm. It's like, hmm, I don't really understand what's happening here. But when you understand at that very base level, it made everything else seem pretty straightforward. Interesting. So you're learning a whole new language and you're developing problem solving skills and a whole lot of patience too. Yes, patience is a really good time and time. I have, I don't have that time anymore. <laughs> when I was a young kid, I certainly had the time to be able to tinker and experiment and learn. And that is definitely what's required for that. Mm. Okay, so fast forward X number of years, and uh, we are where we are now. And um, can you talk about your involvement in, in, in EdTech or in technology in, more broadly? Yeah, so um, I actually had an internship, which is basically where you do your student teaching. But the internship, you can only teach half the day. So this elementary school that hired me as an intern said, what if you do computer support the other half of your day? I said, sure, that sounds really good. So not only did I get to go to school and learn that way, but my internship was also the same, which really laid the groundwork for being unique in a sense that I had the computer background and the education background too. So it just felt like really advantageous. And those experiences then led to when I took my first position, I'd be lying if I wouldn't, you know, if I told you that the districts that I applied for were very intrigued by the background because they certainly didn't have a lot of support around technology. There wasn't a lot of infrastructure. So it certainly helped when looking for, for jobs as a teacher. Interesting. So you have been lo located in Wisconsin? In Northern Wisconsin for a good portion of my life, which is where there are more trees than people. <laughs> I kind of joke about that. And then also experiences in Southeastern Wisconsin, which is a much more populated area. Our largest city of Milwaukee is where Southeastern Wisconsin is. And, um, you know, I, I love that as well. But it seems like all that would happen here is people eating cheese and cheering on the Green Bay Packers. But there's so much more to it. And, you know, being by the Great Lakes, having so many great tourist opportunities that we get to travel to on a regular basis. And, you know, we have really high expectations for education. And I think that's always been the case. Yeah, and that's K-12, kindergarten through 12th grade, as well as our universities. So there's a lot to be proud of in Wisconsin. Wonderful. Then you can watch reruns of Happy Days, too. Yeah, there you go. Yes, absolutely. There's a bronze, the Fawn statue in Milwaukee. So, you know, <laughs> make that trip, you could go find it. Oh, yes. That's right. When can I go? Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 absolutely brilliant so now we know um the specificity if you like of uh, of wisconsin in, in terms of educational opportunities and, and ge geography and so on yeah. but what about the schools that you're involved in and and um your roles in those schools as a superintendent for example sure so uh, i've had experiences in rural schools suburban schools and then also kind of a combination of rural and suburban so I've been in a lot of different educational environments and they have been really great. I so fortunate to have had great mentorship, great leadership. It's made all the difference for me, high expectations by families for their kids, high expectations by the community and support everyone understanding the role schools play in the community or as simple as making sure their kids get a good, edu uh, good education all the way to what property, property values look like. 
within that. And then, you know, most importantly, we have a focus on careers and not just academics. What are kids going to do with their life that they can contribute, that they can take care of themselves, that they can have a family, that they can have a great life and have all those opportunities. And it feels really good to be a part of that. In my current district now, I'm very fortunate because the district I work in is the district my kids, well, one of my daughter goes to seventh grade in my district and my son is now at the high school. We're a K-8 district, which means we're four-year-old kindergarten through eighth grade. And the high school is technically a separate district and it's only about a quarter mile down the road. So we try to be as linked as possible as we can, but my office is a mile and a half away from my home. So (laughs) I don't need to put a cot under my desk those long nights because I don't have a very long drive home. So, Yeah. Wow. You're very lucky, especially in the USA, of course. Yes, absolutely. Many people can for hours, of course. So, um, and and the kids, do they get to walk to school? They can. Um, They might be a little more spoiled. So they're certainly getting rides when and where they can. My son is able to drive so he can take himself and my daughter rides with me to school in the mornings. And uh, then she just walks over to the middle school. So it's maybe 150 feet from my office. So, yeah. yeah. Are, are they very different from you or are they, well, how are they similar from you? Are yeah, similar to you? So I would say my, my wife was our valedictorian in high school and an amazing student and scholar. And thankfully, my kids have those abilities. I, <laughs> I wasn't a bad student. I uh, maybe didn't study as much as I should have. So thankfully my kids have taken on after their mother more than, than me in that regard. So I do appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, and again, they're very talented in different ways, which I love. Thankful that they're not just like their parents. They have sought out their own interests and that's true for co-curriculars and everything beyond. So my daughter is a really great artist. My son's into sports and that's fine, but um, they also get along very well with one another, which is kind of hard to come by some days. Bless him. You're very lucky. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And now talking of uh, parenthood, um, what do you think that um, schools and districts that don't get the same buy-in as you do, um, what, what do you think they could learn from schools like, like yours? Well, so we cannot forget that the most important ally with what we do are the parents, the grandparents, extended family of all types. They're cheering on our kids from every direction and every angle and supporting everything we do. We definitely could not pull off what we do without that. And it would be, it would be really, really tough. And it is such a critical component that they continue to advocate for their children, to continue to support their children to continue to work hand in hand with what we do, because that's probably two thirds of the battle, making sure that those kids coming in with their needs being met, social, emotional, um, you know, making sure that they come in and, and are prepared and feeling good about the day. Because if those things aren't there, they're not gonna be ready to learn. They're not gonna feel like this is a priority. And so our kids are coming in with that. And for those that aren't every day, that's okay. We have uh, supports for that as well. So it really is, and essential, and that's even going with our police department. They're incredible. Our mm-hmm. village and towns, great. We can't ask for more. And so we work really closely with all these partners to make sure that we're all on the same page. And that's, I think, what leads to being a successful organization is that we're collaborative. Because if we pretended that we did it all on our own, that would be a big mistake. 
Yeah. And uh, I dare say local government too, are they involved closely? Absolutely. Yeah. Village, town, uh, police department, they're all in it. And actually, I just presented to our school board yesterday on the uh, presence of the police in our schools and not just for like bad things. Mm-hmm. They're at safety events. They're at going to Great America on bus trips. They're helping us with um, bringing in students, our new sixth grade students to the middle school. And the list is is 20 deep of how they engage and interact with our school district. And we mm-hmm. technically don't have a school resource officer that we actively pay. This is just them understanding those are opportunities for support and creating good community with all of the families in our district through those students as well. So nice to hear. And, and you, you won't be the first to recognize how, how lucky you are and how different that is from the, the experiences of many Americans yes. and British people. And obviously, obviously in the UK at the moment, we're in, we're in a, a state of crisis, should we say. So, is that the that's, case? That's, uh, it certainly is, I'm afraid. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, 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 it's pretty awful. But uh, so you, you're very lucky. Now, what about the, the role of technology? So we're, think, we're thinking about the, what the experiences of, of your kids um, in terms of their learning. So uh, in what ways does technology actually ex- accelerate that learning or support that learning? Yeah, um, what I've noticed is it's an equalizer. So when we ask kids to access technology and resources, they're not limited to what's right in front of them. They're limited to what's across the entire world. And Mm. they also uh, can collaborate with people near and far. They're not limited to the fact that I've now left school. I no longer can communicate with my partner, whether they're in fourth grade or they're in eighth grade. They also have the ability to utilize all these amazing technologies as simple as Google, which Google's not simple, but as an example, that's a very common one, all the way to some of our higher level tools where they use them to extend their learning. They use them to expand their experiences. They use them to really fill out um, and be more robust. So no one should ever be bored or limited. They should always have opportunities to expand what they want to do. When a student finds something they're particularly interested in, there's endless resources to support it. And I guess, you know, for someone like me who was interested in computers at a very young age, I can only imagine what that situation would have been like if that happened 20 years later or 30 years later. And it's kind of exciting to think, but also, you know, we have to worry about the use and the misuse. So we are very careful about that and making sure that there's not too much screen time, it's not excessive, but also that it's filtered uh, so that appropriate content is only accessible. Not because that's our greatest concern, but that's just then it's not something we have to be worried about. But also during COVID, and I know that's such a big reference point for so many people, but they talk about learning loss. And without the technology and without that infrastructure in place, it would have been a lot more. It would have been considerably worse. And we're not ignorant to the fact that there certainly could have been levels of learning loss as a result of COVID, but we're able to move forward as an entire organization. In fact, I would argue we maybe became more efficient, maybe realized what our priorities were, and also leaned on the technology even now, post-COVID, if that's where we're at, to continue that. And I think people have been very happy with how we move forward as an organization, even though I think at this point, we're still trying to to calm down from that. It still feels like we're taking a, a big deep breath yet. 
So eventually I feel like we'll get past that. But for now, without technology, we certainly couldn't have made that happen. Yeah, what are your views in on the progress that we made or, or otherwise during COVID? So for example, we all accept, don't we, that there are there are gaps in, in things like literacy and in social um, skills uh, pandemic but also the pandemic accelerated certain skills for example remote learning but uh, what's your view on on the fallout from that i feel our younger students are the ones who unfortunately missed out on some of those things so the kids coming in through kindergarten and first grade you know they were forced into this very unique environment kindergarten or 4k should be your first experiences being a part of our school having that structure that exposure to other kids, other friends, other um, curriculum to have that formal opportunity for learning that certainly it happens unofficially at home, but that official learning that sets the stage and echoes in eternity for their career as a student. Uh, when that became maladjusted as a result of COVID and we did the best we could, um, it's really hard to recuperate that time. And we can always say kids are resilient and they are but it, it's not um, as easy for them Or I feel like students that have had that experience, there are older students who had worked through it. They struggled too, but they also understand what school is about and what it's like. And so we know the emphasis of education for our youngest learners and how crucial it is to get them on track as soon as possible. And I feel that that's the greatest negative impact is for our youngest learners. Fortunately, we have the greatest amount of time to work back through it with them. So it's not to say that our oldest students, again, weren't important or that we didn't have to value them. We absolutely did. But I think they were the ones most likely to recover from it because they could utilize that technology a little bit more and be more flexible within that. Yeah. So are you able to give examples of how you tried to, um, I suppose, cope with that deficit, if you like, um, in, in kids' learning and kids' social skills? Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the things that happened as a result of uh, special funding, federal funding that was meant to support school districts throughout COVID. And those funds are still available, but districts are typically spending through that now, was starting summer school for the first time ever in this district. And you might think, oh, well, that's not that exciting. What, what, what difference would that make? Well, it was those funds that were used that needed the, to be the seed money, essentially, to kick off the programming so that we could afford to roll out summer school. And we rolled it out in grand fashion. Uh, Jane, who is our director of student and staff services, did an incredible job with so many other people, by the way, to institute our first year of summer school. Now we have 1500 students in the district and we had about 350 attend summer school. It's a pretty big number for our first year. So mm. you might think, oh, well, that was probably then to deal with students who fell behind. Well, no, no, no. It wasn't just about that. It was also about enrichment. We wanted students to continue to have the great flavor and experience of learning, even if it was for something maybe out of the ordinary or exciting, like um, fab, fab Lab or Project Lead the Way type skills. And the experiences were great. Our teacher participation was great. We expect this is going to continue to grow and expand. And we think instead of trying to play catch up so much, during the year, let's make learning an option year round, but give some choice and selection. And we feel then it's not being forced. And now we have these really great opportunities for learning beyond. And again, I've been in other districts that have had summer school, but for this community, that was a really big step. 
Yeah, it, interesting. And um, of course, summer school is nothing new, but it's really nice that you're approaching it uh, from a position of uh, positivity and not lack or absence. Right. Um, which is really nice to hear. Um, now, I think that one, th- one thing that I've certainly noticed in the UK as well is, is that there's a lack of clarity on what catching up really looks like. Um, I'd imagine it's similar for you, but what, what do you think? Well, so the, the, the ability to determine how much we're catching up on kind of lies in the hands of certainly assessments and testing. Yep, it's all there. But no one knows our students better than the teachers. You can basically say, if you had to look at a student's name and make an assumption for now on where they might land within their current levels of, let's call that proficiency on some level of standard, where would they be? And they're usually pretty accurate because they know each kid that well. And so the feedback from them has been, I would say less about the academic uh, fall behind and more about that social emotional um, regulation as well as behavioral. That's where I think we're seeing the greatest amount of variation post COVID not that our kids aren't reading and writing and learning the way they have, and that they're so far behind, we're never gonna catch them up. It is about the opportunity to have exposure, to work with one another, to be collaborative, to self-regulate, as I mentioned. And it's such a crucial thing, particularly when, not the expectations from schools, but in life in general are really high and our kids are very active and they're very busy and they have to understand how to decide if they're doing well or not, and then what to do about it that's probably been our greatest challenge. And so I think about loss and I would characterize it more as again, that those life skills than I would even the learning itself. Mm, definitely. And of course, we're picking up the pieces of, uh, well, what was called a mental health time bomb at the time, but of course, um, you know, the, you, you'll be adapting to, to, to those uh, challenges uh, on a case by case basis, when you're student by student, day by day. There's um, a lot of supports in place that we need and and I would argue we might not even have enough to make that Mm. happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, getting back to the, I suppose, brighter issue of of technology, can you you walk me through the experience at ground level if if, if that's possible? So for example, if I'm in in, uh, eighth grade in your school, um, can I bring my own phone, my own cell phone to school? Um, Would I use um, the, 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 my own iPad or something, or would that be provided by the school? Would I use um, hardware provided by the school during the day? Would I be kept away from technology in the day? And so on. Yeah, great question. So the um, if we use our middle school, it was rebuilt in 2020, so just recently. And it's a beautiful building. It has so many great learning spaces within it. And so anywhere you walk within the middle school, everything looks like a brand new space. And by itself, a brand new space does nothing more than just to provide some space to learn. But it's something where you can tell immediately there's a different approach to how classrooms are set up for learning. It's more flexible. Kids have more options for seating. They don't just sit in a bunch of rows and that's it. It's more collaborative. There are breakout spaces. But when we talk about technology, With that, you're probably not surprised to hear that there's new technology in all of those classrooms as well. Students are provided a Chromebook by the district. And Chromebooks have been great. Now we have other devices in the district, but the primary one is Chromebooks for students to take home every day. 
Mm. And with that, they have the programming, Google being the hub for that. But then we also have a lot of wireless uh, options. So no matter where you are in the entire building, you'd have full wireless access. And then also for projection and or panels, we have a combination. So we have the Epson Brightlink projectors, which are incredible. Uh, they're 100 inch boards that are very bright. You know, we have all these windows in our new building. And even with that, you don't have to have the lights off. You don't have to have the shades drawn. You know, it's just a regular screen, but it's interactive. And then we also have some touch flat panels as well based on the setup. So in other words, depending upon the uh, classroom space or the office space, you'll see that we have panels too. So that way a student's really easy and they can quickly project anything that's on their device, share with the rest of the classroom. And of course they can do that through Google as well. But I do like that we have the quick option to be able to take any student's work and quickly display that up at the front. And then we also have robust internet so that we're not stuck. So we have fiber optics throughout the district so that we can get um, 10 gigs of internet speed, which is a lot for our system, but we're not uh, throttled. We have a Palo Alto firewall that really takes us to that next level. So we have all the security we need within our system. It allows us to be able to manage all of the different uh, networks that we have in terms of our VLANs. And then again, at the classroom level, that means that when teachers are, all students are streaming, they're absolutely able to do that without restriction. When it comes to cell phones, that's more of a case-by-case -case basis. So we usually push families and, and say that, well, the, stu the student can bring their cell phone to school, but we'd like to be keeping that to the side so that's not out unless the teacher says, yes, we want you to try something with a mobile device if you have one, because they are given that Chromebook to use throughout the entire day. You're very lucky that it appears to be underpinned by robust connectivity, because without that, you have nothing. Correct. And the fact is, uh, I've been in spaces that have had some challenges there, and it's aggravating to the point where people start to lose a little faith in using that utility if it's not dependable. And so that has to be a, a primary thing. So we've got a really great team of technology people who work every day really hard to make sure the entire district is supported well. It, I mean, it's very nice to hear that the kids can uh, project uh, their own work and share with other pupils. So it feels like a collaborative space and the breakout spaces and so on. Um, do you have any data that might indicate what kind of, how this is, this is improving outcomes for, for pupils or, mm. or is, is it early days? Yeah, good question. I would say it, it's a bit anecdotal, but what I can tell you is when I make my way through the buildings and that whole mindset of centuries old sage on the stage, teacher at the front of the classroom, guiding and facilitating, while that's not dead, there's still appropriate times when that needs to be. The center of the stage is the, is the screen up at the front, but it isn't always the person standing there directing, if that makes sense. It's allowed yeah. us to be a lot more agile in terms of how and when information is shared and by whom. And then also it's not that the teacher has to be the center of the informational universe. It's allowed students to be able to find that information, that data, and to be share that quickly with others and to display that. And it's just a, simply a matter of clicking a button, typing in four numbers, and there it is on the screen. And that again, allows teachers to be like, it's not just about my information. And I think there's this mindset and I was guilty of it too when I taught, we had to harvest every single piece of information that would be shared within a given day. 
And why would we do that? Let our students be the ones who are both seeking that information, who are synthesizing that information and then sharing that information with others. Yeah, I mean, it's a phrase that I, I like to use, the tyranny of data. You know, you have so much data, you don't know what to do with it, and, and it becomes meaningless. That's a, really a great, that's a really great phrase. I'm going to write that one down. I like that. You can have that one on me. Great, I really <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and also, what are your views on the, uh, I suppose, the, the, the pervasiveness of big tech in, in school situations? Uh, so, for example, I had a guest on the podcast a few months ago called Sean Shepard, and he um, used the phrase, you know, if the product is free, you are the product. So <laughs> think about the, the data that Google yeah. are gathering. Yeah, technology can be considered a drug in that way. You sample the free stuff and then you're hooked for the paid stuff. And I think what happened is as we were early adopters in devices with apps, the free apps were like the only way to go. And while they still are in many cases, uh, I think we all decided we needed a budget that could support paid versions of the things we do so that we could properly manage it and make sure it was quality. Because I think there was unfortunately a lot of poor quality um, software tools that at least initially were fun and exciting, but technology is not about the novelty anymore. It's about outcomes, it's about use. And just by simply having a device in your hands, well, 20 years ago, that was exciting and cool. And now it's no different than having a pencil. So what is it that we're doing for quality programming to make sure that the devices are being used properly? And it is gonna cost you money, you have to account for that. And if you don't, you're gonna have, again, ineffective, I think technology, and you're also going to have the outcomes not be there. In other words, kids are going to be like, uh, I don't have access to the full utility here, or they're not going to have the full experience because we're training them not just to use tech. They're likely going to have a job in the future that relies on that same technology. If nothing else, it's going to be even more advanced. So mm. um, yeah, it feels pretty good to, I think, be aware as long as we can manage it we control the narrative and hopefully that continues to be the case because I know there are always challenges with data privacy and data access, but um, we have to also have a little bit of faith that will be protected, but also take all necessary steps that we can. Absolutely, and I don't know about you, but I don't know what the solution is around things like data privacy and, and uh, big tech. Uh, I, I have you know, some awareness of what, uh, what we shouldn't be doing and what we would like to be doing, but I really don't know what the solution is. I think the state of Wisconsin just won a lawsuit against Google mm. for the tune of, I believe it was 391 million for antitrust. Interesting. Mm -hmm. wow. It just happened a few days ago that this was published. Uh, but it was a Wisconsin is getting 8.4. It looks like after multi-state. So the multi-state agreement was 391 million for 40 states, and it was basically about big tech companies not respecting people's privacy and also not being transparent about their practices. Right. In what context was that? Was it schools, universities, or uh, more in general? So it wasn't through mm -hmm. anything uh, education related. Uh, one of the things that we're aware of, too, is when we have our Google for Education environment, we pay for the enterprise version, which means we do have a contract that says we hold that data, not Google. Now, does that mean that's absolutely a guarantee? Nothing is. But 
at least we have contractual language that allows us to do that as opposed to just being a general gmail.com type account. Mm. Wow, okay. Part of the people of Wisconsin, this is this is very cool. The fonts will be proud. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, believe it or not, I actually was a the class representative for when Microsoft was sued by the state of Wisconsin for $223 million. So it was Spence mm. versus Microsoft. Right, okay. Yeah. And and antitrust as well. And there was what's called a Cypre clause. So any dollars not um, claimed on the front end all went to education on the back end. That was the agreement. So wow. it was 130 million that went to school districts across the state of Wisconsin. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. I'm not aware of any other um, antitrust uh, cases in, in the USA. I mean, you imagine there'd be a domino effect here, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think what it is is the the amount of money we're talking about is not very much in the scheme of things for those companies. So as much as it's a win for the states, maybe near and far, I don't know if it does much to change their practices other than I'm sure it's forcing them to try to look at them differently, but also the money itself is probably, you know, we asked you for a a $10 um, check at a restaurant. You'd be like, Oh, that seems very affordable. I can take that. Yes. It's a loose change. (laughs) Yes. Right. (laughs) Well, this is, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, uh, Tony, and, and I'm really grateful that you've uh, you've taken the time to to talk to me and give us uh, your um, expertise and your your view of your, of your experiences uh, in your in your context. So, thank you so much. I suppose one thing, one final thing that I'd like to ask you really is, um, given the pace of technology, which um, did accelerate on one hand during the, the pandemic and perhaps has not accelerated at the same rate since. Um, what are your hopes for the next couple of years in, in, in terms of how tech can change our lives? Yeah, great. Well, Pete, I just want to say thank you for the time and really have enjoyed the conversation. Great questions, by the way. Never know what to expect, but the questions are as thought-provoking to me as I hope they are for others. But thank you for asking those and being so thoughtful about that. But on this last one, I see the the opportunity with more ubiquity in terms of wireless internet access, whether it be on mobile devices or across systems, to be able to, again, to continue to connect the things that we all use. And while some people might get a little scared of that because it's networking everything, uh, I also feel that that is what allows our society to get to that next level in terms of innovation, but also that next level for jobs. And we often, when I was a kid, talked about, you know, that job will be obsolete by the time you graduate from college or something like that, which is terrible to think about it. But we can't sit and let obsolescence of jobs become the reason people are unemployed. We have to yeah. think of that next level. And I know we shouldn't think of our kids, particularly our youngest, as just uh, we're preparing you for work. There's so much more to it. But ultimately, that's what's at stake. And we feel that the technology itself doesn't have to be in everything. But if it is, we can't look at the use of technology as the pariah of things. We have to embrace it a bit to say, okay, if this is the expectation, then how do we do this right? And so our our schools can really teach kids how to appropriately use technology and, and use it the right way so that when they are adults and when they are working through that, they have a great foundation for that use. And I think that's going to have to go hand in hand. You know, the faster the car, the more capable you have to be of a driver. 
when we started to fly planes, we had to know how to do that too. So it's not like we weren't able to evolve that way. We absolutely did. And I think we just have to continue that evolution with the technology. Well, you must be a real inspiration to uh, the young people you come into contact with, with, uh, with that kind of um, thinking. So um, thank you so much for that. Um, and I've really enjoyed our conversation, Tony. So, uh, and the best of luck to you. Um, and please keep in touch. Thank you, Pete. You as well. Have a great rest of the weekend. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation as well.